Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in from another episode from the Isle of Dr. Garneau. I'm Kelly J. Lewis, and with me, of course, is Dr. Chris Garneau. Dr. Garneau, one of the things that we did not talk about last week that I really want to want to hear your opinion on are the bills against transgendered athletes. And there are a lot of states that are bringing up these different bills that are what I would consider detrimental to to these athletes and and again it's it's supposed to be protecting these female athletes and and uh you know not allowing these biological males to play ball but first of all that just assumes that men are better athletes than Mm. women yeah so it's a weird assumption that you make uh because here here like if we go back into, into time and kind of look at the nature of sports and athletic ability anyway, it's kind of a weird and sorted history. So let's actually start with the military, because I think this is an interesting way to think about it. Um, for many years, women were not uh, accepted into combat. And, um, you know, that's somehow still even somewhat of a controversial issue. Some of it had to do with the fact that men outperformed women so greatly or vastly when it came to um, the basic skills drills that they had to do. But part of that was it was sort of set up by men in a way that was more likely for men to succeed. Perfect example is look at kitchen cabinets. Most kitchen cabinets you can tell are designed by someone who is about six feet tall. And, you know, so when you have... Uh, men that are designing things for everybody, of course, men benefit from that, right? So it's easier for uh, someone who's six foot tall to reach the top of the cabinet. Um, so men benefit from that. Well, here's the, the same issue. So for example, in the military, if you look at the wall that they're supposed to be able to um, you know, crawl over, that's part of the timed, uh, the timed test. Well, the way that they had it set up was so that you had to use your upper body strength to pull yourself up using a rope. And you had to let your feet dangle as you went over. Well, for women, that was very, very difficult. And they were losing time penalty on it. Um, And someone came along and said, well, what if you just let them use their legs to crawl up the wall? Because the thing of it is, is men tend to have more upper body strength in their shoulders and their biceps. And women, women tend to have... Uh, pound for pound more force in their quadriceps and hips because men don't have hips why we gotta our belts are not accessories they're actually to keep our pants on um and so you know we do have slightly different physiologies but the whole point is that particular thing was set up for the benefit of men so what you're asking is or what you're alluding to is a really good point which is why do we just make the assumptions that men are better at things when we've kind of designed sports and designed these activities to benefit men based off of the rules that we have in place. That's interesting. And, and so what, what, let's talk about these bills that, that are up in a lot of state houses. Mm -hmm. They had, they, these bills are all over and, um, it's the it's the bills um, against transgendered athletes and it's the bills against voting and limiting voting that are really hot tickets right now. And so what does I mean, what does this actually societally, what does this how does this benefit anybody making these bills against these these young transgendered athletes? Isn't that just another form of discrimination? 
Well, I would say it has to be. I mean, it's if you understand how Title IX reads, like one of the biggest things that Title IX does at university, so universities and, and high schools and elementary schools. So um, I have to go through Title IX training every year. And one of the big things that they talk about is that there has to be an equal opportunity and gender, can, gender and sex cannot be limited, limiting factors when it comes to opportunities. So when it comes to high schools for a long time before Title IX came along, boys just had more sports open and available to them. So they had, there was boys only football, right? So then what a lot of schools did is they made girls only volleyball. However, it turns out the boys like to play volleyball too. And somehow girls like to play football. So, you know, it was, it, it kind of got translated into this as long as it's open to everyone, it's okay. That's better than, than having it lopsided. So that that's a better solution. Um, I think there's still yet better solutions out there, but I think what this is, it's, it's, it's signaling the culture wars and that we have states that have elected officials who are firmly entrenched into those culture wars. So they've kind of dug their heels in and they said, nope, this is the new, this is the new thing that they're talking about. Um, you know, we were talking about cancel culture last week. I was just thinking about this. Um, during my generation, cancel, cal, uh, cancel culture was the PMRC and the fact that anytime you bought a record, it had a parental advisory sticker on it. That was like, seriously, satanic music was the biggest thing that people worried about in the, the early 80s. And somehow we've just kind of let that issue go. But the point is within these culture wars, then you just grapple on to something else. So right now, I think that's the line in the sand. But it, it begs a question, like, why do we have athlete athletics set up in the way that they do? I will never forget when, when I interned in Washington, D.C., I got uh, tickets to go watch an N, uh, WNBA game, uh, which is the women's uh, NBA league. And they make like one fiftieth of what the men do. Uh, I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous how little money they make. But what was interesting is I found the game really entertaining. And the the way that women play versus the way that men play are somewhat dictated by their physiology, but it's also culture and it's other kinds of things. But what's interesting is that one is valued and others the other is not. I've also been to NBA games where I've been bored out of my mind. So you know, it doesn't necessarily. Ha I don't. I don't buy into. Well, it's you know, it's it's corporate and it, it it's kind of what's hot at that time. I think it again has to do with the rules that are set up. So I think what we have to ask ourselves is what does it mean to have an unfair advantage to have genders and sexes playing together? Um, one of the things that I always think about is I think we already privilege some people based off of their normal physiology and hormonal response. So if you are over six foot seven you have a much higher chance of playing basketball at a higher level, regardless of your coordination and your skill. And that just has to do with the fact that that is a sport that's built for a rim that's 10 feet tall that you got to get a little sphere through, right? So aren't we already in some ways giving a disadvantage to people who happen to be born taller? So the question is, if someone is taking um, enhancement uh, hormones in order to not not for the purpose of enhancement, but hormones that do enhance athletic performance, but for the purpose of um, aligning someone's gender identity um, with their outward appearance, like is that an unfair advantage? And I've actually researched this. I teach sex and gender every other fall. And one of the things that we looked at was that if we're looking at trans men, so people who were assigned female at birth, but are, but are trans men, um, when they went through the hormone changes and they, they started doing hormone replacement therapy, 
it wasn't that they actually had more testosterone than men who were assigned male at birth. They actually had comparable levels of testosterone. So it's not necessarily, like, yes, testosterone can be seen as enhancement, but it's sort of like just kind of getting to the same level because there are all sorts of issues that we can look at where you can look at this one issue and see that legally, I don't know where they have the standing to do this because it, we don't even know how to define gender, right? So I'm going to tell you about a story about Duti Chand, um, a runner from India. So Duti is a woman and she was breaking every record out there. I mean, she is killing it. She is fast, 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 fast. So she's, you know, the, basically what happened was the Olympics are looking at her. And if you look at her, she has really broad shoulders, really strong biceps, really strong legs, and a very square jawline. So that's her physiology. She looks very masculine, but she is, she has two X chromosomes. Um, that's not all of the story because she also has androgens and, and scientifically they were able to test and figure out that she actually does produce testosterone at an incredible rate that most men would be envy, envious of. So what do you do with Duty Chand, right? Um, so she's been banned from Olympic running. The Olympics said, uh, well, yeah, you're female, but you're not like we're, you know, you have an unfair advantage because of these hormones. Well, what about dudes that are, you know, testosterone, all, you know, testosterone all over the place too. The point is it's so blurry. So when states try to make these decisions based on what's on the birth certificate, it doesn't even match up with what's going on hormonally inside of our bodies because it's really freaking complicated. But when you do this, you open the door to all of the lawsuits that came along later that hurt individuals, male or female, that they were able to then counter back with, I could see this going to an appellate court all the way up to the Supreme Court at some point. So um, I don't think it's going anywhere. I mean, well, maybe in some states it will, but I, I, I don't ultimately think these laws can stay on the books because I think they're going to be challenged. And I think there's just too, it's the, 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 the water is too murky. What these state senators and governors and what have you are doing is securing their political position within a system by taking a stand on a cultural issue. And I honestly, I don't think it's any more than that. Societally, I don't think it means any more than that. Speaking of a cultural and societal issue, let's touch um, briefly on the awful mass shooting that happened mm. in Colorado this last week and how um, it's we're having the same old conversation about banning assault rifles, about doing all of these things. And are we even really going to do anything? Yeah, I, I kind of wonder on this. So this is the, the tricky part of it. it. I mean, these things happen in states all over the United States. Unfortunately, it's a reality um, that we've been living with. So to give some context, The Onion, which is a satirical news out, out, outlet, Every time there's a mass shooting without fail, they release a news article that I think they originally ran in the mid 2000s, like it's 15 years old now. And it said, you know, only country where this regularly happens, you know, asks, what could we possibly do to stop this? And they've almost made it a political statement now where they re-release that article because it happens every time. I remember when Obama was president, um, I think, I can't remember if it was Sandy Hook, it may have been Sandy Hook, um, where he got on television 
And he said, he almost looked, he looked upset, but mad, like angry. Like one of the few times you see him angry. And he's like, so how many times are we going to do this? What are we going to, like, when is Congress going to do something about this? Like how many times, how many times do I have to stand up here and say, you know, how horrible, how awful of a thing this is. And presidents since Obama have done it. So it's happened on Trump's watch. It's happened on Biden's watch. Strangely enough, during the pandemic, people were staying at home. And one of the things that we, we, we were not allowed to study gun deaths that was banned by the Trump administration. Um, but one of the things that criminologists have been able to figure out is that mass shootings went down for like the, to a, 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 an insanely low level, like to a level we have never seen since we started recording the data. And that was happening during the lockdown. Um, in, it, it happened in, in different neighborhoods disproportionately, but that was what was really fascinating about it. So now that we're starting to open up some of the businesses, it's kind of back to usual, but it's back to usual for this other stuff too. Now, Colorado already has laws on the books. And of course, for the pro-gun people, they love this because it says, look, you can have a state that already has gun regulation and, you know, these things happen. And that's absolutely true. You know, these things do happen in those places, but it's, it's a really hard argument to make in the only industrialized country in the world where guns are so readily available. And when we have really one gun for every, you know, person in, in the country that, at least some kind of regulation isn't necessary. And here's the thing, you don't even have to go all the way to banning. You don't have to go that far. Like you can still let people, you know, have their second amendment rights, but it has been chipped away due to the NRA in such a way that it, and there's, it's such a, it's such a political nightmare for any politician to even broach the subject that we, we've not really regulated anything aside from the bump stocks. We have not really regulated anything in the past 15 to 20 years. And it's something that, Politically, it's so hard to revisit because anytime you do it, you get, you know, well, the NRA is probably not as big of a factor as it was, um, uh, but you get other, other, you know, voters who get really upset. My personal opinion on this, and I don't know, because I'm not a politician. My personal opinion is, I think at some point you just got to, you just got to do it. You have to be bold and you have to be the first person to say, look, the the crazy gun toting people that we're most afraid of make up a minority of gun owners. Most gun owners have a one small, um, you know, handgun for personal protection or a hunting rifle, right? When we start looking at the people that are stocking up on these semi-automatics, we're talking about a lot of guns that are being bought by a very small number of people that don't equate to a lot of votes. I think most gun owners, I grew up in a house of gun owners. We had, we were on a farm. Like my dad was not nuts about guns. He wasn't, you know, like I think we use the term amosexual. Um, he wasn't a gun nut. He was like, yeah, we have guns to shoot the coyotes in case they try to get towards the chickens and that's it. You know, and maybe we'll go deer hunting, something like that during deer season. That is a far cry from what the folks that are still NRA aligned want you to think of when people start talking about restrictions of guns. We're talking about if you have a domestic violence case against you, you probably shouldn't be able to register to own a gun. Um, if you have certain types of violent criminal records, you shouldn't be able to own a gun. If you've been convicted of a terrorist, you know, terrorism, you shouldn't be able to own a gun. We, it, we have made it so easy in so many states to own guns that anytime you even bring up the, the question, it gets really hard. But here's the thing, Kelly, then we wait until there's another mass shooting before we 
ever ask the question again. We go to thoughts and prayers mode, and then we're stuck in thoughts and prayers mode because it's it's disrespectful to talk about it while, while families mourn until it happens again. And we've been in this holding pattern for as long as I have been following the news. I want to get back a little bit more to gender and let's talk about how different the story is and the storyline is from this supermarket shooting to the shootings at the Asian massage parlors. Mm. The, the, the rhetoric and the reporting is completely different. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're sex workers, some of them, not all of them, but some of them. And I think that that really um, affects how the, how law enforcement handles these issues, because since this, since the supermarket shooting, we haven't heard a thing one Hmm. about Asians or anything about this case. Yeah, I think that's the resistance to Americans to want to appreciate socially social structure in some of the social problems that we have. So immediately from the right spectrum, what I heard after the shootings in Georgia was it's a lone wolf, it's a crazy dude, it's a it, they individualize it, right? That's the same. If you remember the Las Vegas shooting, um, disturbed person, and yes, it sounds like maybe they were, but also you, you, you get. It, it, there, it doesn't mean, okay, cra- like we, we've kind of had this idea, crazy people do crazy things. Well, that's not necessarily true. There are a lot of people who have mental illness. And what I don't like about that is a lot of people, the vast majority of, you know, will, of, of Americans will ha- suffer some kind of mental illness at some point in their lives. Um, it also like, f- like reinforces the stigma against mental illness and mental health when we should be destigmatizing it. But it, it also says, well, we can just explain it away through mental illness. The guy was was nuts and he, you know, did this thing. Like, yeah, but you have to look at the, the patterns here. Um, Dylan Roof, go back to that case, right? That was racially motivated. It was, I mean, it was impossible to ignore it. When you look at what this guy had to say and, you know, what we know about his history without trying to get into his head, um, there he was probably picking up and, and, and this is the, you know, the best that we can deduce was picking up on stereotypes that have existed about Asian women in the United States for a really long time. Um, hypersexualized, oversexualized, uh, you know, there's like a mystique that's kind of put around certain types of cultures. It's really kind of damaging. Um, I, it, 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 it's, it's in, 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 and I think racial minority groups, you know, take your pick, have certain kinds of stereotypes that then reinforce how individuals act towards them, right? And I think that matters quite a lot. Um, and so for the Asian women that were targeted, I, I, it's, it's impossible to think that number one, their race, and number two, their occupation didn't have something to do with setting this dude off. And that, you know, under different circumstances, maybe instead he goes to, a mental health professional and get some help. We don't necessarily know, but it, it, I, I think more than anything from a broad view, a social structural view, it means that we need to think about how we typecast 
individuals in our minds and why it's really important, like we talked last time, that we don't have a president who racializes the coronavirus every time he talks about it and does those things because it has an effect. It has an impact. Um, you know, one of the other things that, that we had mentioned last time too is that Asian American bigotry has gone up dramatically over the past year. Um, so much so that when restaurants started reopening, it was really hard for restaurants and traditionally Asian parts of, of, of major cities, like the little Chinatowns that are set up in a lot of major cities, had a hard time getting going. And I think a lot of that had to do with that connection that was unfortunately made politically. So the way we talk about these things actually matter. Um, it was one shooting, but the thing of it is, is you know, if you're Asian American, living in the United States, you've got to be thinking at some point, like, you know, this, this is a, a, a dangerous time for me to be around. I, I, I remember I was going to school with um, other Muslim students shortly after 9-11 who felt the same way. Um, they felt that they had a target, like they were targeted. Um, you know, just to give a, a real quick example, when I was in, I think it was my senior year in college, uh, I took a world religions class. We went to go visit a mosque. And the imam at the mosque told us a story about how a couple times in the, the months after 9-11, pickup trucks would come by and someone would just point a gun out of the front window and then drive on by, you know, and they just kind of dealt with that. And, and it's really hard to feel safe. So when these things happen, it has a psychological ripple effect. So if, you know, if you're an Asian American woman, particularly in the United States, when you hear something like this, it has to, you know, at least pop in your mind that, what if another crazy person has this idea? So yeah, it's, it's an individual who is having problems on their own, but we have societal cues that kind of shape the way that people think about the problems that they're having at the time. And it's a complicated issue, but it's, it's also something that Asian Americans, uh, there's a, the model minority myth, Asian Americans do very, very well monetarily. Um, you know, uh, have had a lot of success in the United States. And so they're considered to be the model minority, right? And the whole idea is, well if, well, if Asians can do it, all other minority groups can do it too. And there's a whole set of circumstances why that's not true. Um, but anyways, the, the point is, it, it is that Asian Americans still face discrimination and that this model minority myth is a myth and that, that that is something that we should be thinking about from a societal standpoint. So yeah, I do think it's a problem. Um, and it, it intersects with, what we've been talking about with gender, and it also intersects what we've been talking about with gun violence. And I, I, what I'm interested in seeing is if lawmakers are going to respond to any of these kinds of issues. Um, where do you want to go with our with our last segment? Okay, so I do want to talk about this. I want to stick with gender a little bit. And by the way, happy belated Equal Pay Day. Yay. Um, the the Ledbetter uh, Amendment or Act. Um, I heard an interview with her yesterday that was just fascinating. She's 80 something years old. And uh, she said one of her, the, the greatest things that she, you know, she thinks about her life is that if there's anything that, that she did, it was this idea that, that employers cannot, um, cannot fire employees for disclosing their income uh, and talking about how much money they make, because that was kind of the whole point with secrecy really aided in the unequal pay. Um, we have closed that gap some. Um, and when we look at how we have closed the gap, part of it was women participating in 
the, the market. The other part was affirmative action. And, and this is something I would really like our, our listeners to, to know. The, the data on affirmative action is interesting. Affirmative action is one of the most misunderstood policies. Basically says if you've got two qualified people and one is a, a woman rather than a man or racial minority versus a white, that they should get the job or the spot in college or whatever it is because they've had to work through sexism, racism, et cetera, to be able to get to that point. Anyway, so that's how it works. It's very rarely applied, but that's how it works. What we know is that um, is that Americans of color have benefited very little from affirmative action, and the one group of people who have really benefited from a- affirmative action is white women. Um, so white women have greatly increased their wages. The wage gap between white women and, and white men is actually somewhat small, but white women and all men is actually quite small. What we when we really start to see the differences today is women of color versus men in general. And for Hispanic women, it's about 50 cents to the dollar. It is really, really low. So we, we have a lot, of, a, a lot of room left to go, a lot of work to do. Um, it, it's important to bring up these intersections and intersectionality because when we talk about the wage gap, yeah, we've gone from 67 cents on the dollar to 80 cents on the dollar. But where has that where has that been made up? It's really been made up by white women more than any other group. And so that's you know just something to throw out there I wanna talk about. Um, but uh, with, with regard to gender in our last segment, I wanna talk about some research that came out not too long ago um, that I think is very interesting. So we talked a lot about women. Let's talk about men. What's going on with men these days? <laughs> okay, anyway. So um, this, is, this was an article one of the co-authors is uh, at OU, but anyway, here's the, I'll just read you the title here. The title of this article is uh, published or set to be published in the journal for the scientific study of religion uh, is linking evangelical subculture and phallically insecure masculinity using Google searches for male enhancement. Okay. That's a mouthful. So let me see if I can try <laughs> to, uh, I'll break it down. I'm going to read the abstract. Okay. Ready, Kelly? Okay, this, is how, yes. this is what they did. Yes. So it says numerous studies document the connection between American evangelicalism and male insecurity stemming from essential essentialist phallocentric conceptions of masculinity, yet data have often been confined to individual responses and surveys. Building on moral communities framework in this research, we analyze Google Trends data and focus on the prevalence of explicit searches for male enhancement terms and phrases simultaneously indicating one, the internalization of a subculture that prioritizes uh, phallocentric standards of masculinity, and two, privately felt failure to meet those standards. So what they find is that Google, uh, uh, the preponderance of evangelicals in a state consistently predicts more Google searches for terms and phrases like, quote, male enhancement, quote, extends, quote, penis pump, quote, penis enlargement, and others. so I thought, <laughs> and Oklahoma is a very evangelical state, um, not a Baptist here, uh, as well as elsewhere, but it, it kind of gets, gets to this other idea that we don't, uh, we don't talk about. I, in, in my gender in class, we do talk about women a lot. Um, I try to reserve at least a week to talking about issues that are relevant to men. And here's what I think about this. This isn't necessarily just to beat up on evangelicals, but I think we can make that connection when you grow up in a culture that says to be a man is to be a manly man, the manliest man, and, you know, chop down trees and, you know, wear your, your car hearts and, you know, do that kind of stuff. I have a dozen Um, kids. Yeah. I have a dozen kids and, you know, you prove your masculinity. Um, 
I, this is what I think. I, I, I think it's an easier sell to make to say that feminism helps men too. And it, it does in a variety of ways. I think it takes away this idea that to be a manly man, you have to do X, Y, and Z and says that to be a man in the United States, like there's, there's a thousand different ways to do it. And there's a thousand different states that you can occupy. And I think more than anything, what we see, especially in young boys starting as early as five years old, is what I call um, this, this psychological stifling, where for, for men, like you, you, get, you get two emotional states that you can be in. You can be hungry and you can be angry, or maybe you can be hangry, right? So I just ate, so I must be angry. Um, so young men really don't get a lot of diversity in the kinds of emotions that they're allowed to feel from a societally, you know, supported perspective. And I think that hurts men. And so let's get in, in, in this, you know, if, if you want to also talk about the shootings that happened in Georgia, this is part of it. Like that's, it's definitely part of it. When you're frustrated, when something's not working, and so you use violence as a conduit to try to deal with it. And, and I, you know, when we look at these mass shootings, there have been very few women that are doing these things, right? There are very few women that are involved in some of the most horrendous mass homicides in, in, in our history. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that men are, are kind of taught to shut out their emotions in a lot of ways. And so what I liked about that research is it, it kind of verifies that there are subcultures that are assisting in giving men a sorry I was gonna put a I was gonna say tiny little <laughs> they have to measure up in a very specific way otherwise they're not you know it, it's but but I think that's damaging it's really harmful like and when we start telling little boys like you can't be sad about something you can't you know show that you're upset about something well what else can they do other than you know grab a, a bat and start beating on something you know like and and, and so I, I think that's part of when we talk about toxic masculinity we have to talk about society being able to tell boys that it's okay to have feelings and 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 accept that they need they need to express them in a constructive way mm -hmm. that's you know i think that's a, a huge thing so I uh, thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. Don't forget if you've missed any of our past episodes, all you got to do is catch up with them wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kelly J. Lewis with Dr. Chris Garneau from the Isle of Dr. Garneau. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great day.